on a mission. It's a mission to turn our world upside down. That happens when people hear the good news of Jesus. So get ready for God to turn you upside down. In medicine, human diseases are often put into one of two categories. Either they are communicable diseases or they are incommunicable diseases. Now, communicable diseases are those which are easily transmitted from one person to another. For example, COVID-19 is a very communicable disease. One person gets the virus, then coughs or sneezes a bit, and micro droplets with that virus fill the air. Another person comes along and breathes in those droplets and gets infected. COVID is indeed a very communicable disease. The root of that word, communicable, is the Latin word communis, meaning common or shared. It's actually at the root of many English words, not only communicable, but the word community, even communicate. In a community, people will share in the same neighborhood. They will share in it. They hold it in common, that neighborhood. In communication, People share their thoughts, their words with one another. So theologians sometimes categorize the attributes of God. They categorize them as either communicable attributes or incommunicable attributes. God's communicable attributes are those that he shares with us, at least to some degree. His incommunicable attributes are not shared. Take God's attribute of omnipotence, omnipotence, his being all-powerful and sovereign. That's an incommunicable attribute of God. God's omnipotence belongs only to himself. He doesn't share that attribute with us as humans. Today we're going to reflect on some of God's communicable attributes, those he shares with us. First, let's talk about God as a holy God. It's his attribute of holiness. When you read the Bible, you'll find many, many references to God's holiness. I'm thinking, for example, of that vision that God gave to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah saw heaven's throne in that vision and God seated on that throne. And around that throne were certain creatures known as seraphim. Chapter 6, verse 3, they were calling out to one another, saying, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. The Lord God is holy. I think when most people think of that attribute of holiness or being holy, they often think of purity, spiritual and moral purity, complete purity. For example, we picture a holy woman as someone who's reading her Bible and praying a lot, and she goes about doing a lot of good things for others. We could say that she's a holy person. But in the Bible, there are two aspects of holiness. And in the first aspect, holiness refers to someone or something that's set apart by God for his special service. That's why in the Old Testament, God refers to his ancient people Israel as a holy people. Not, first of all, that they were super faithful or super good. Rather, God is the one who has called them, and he set them apart. He set them apart from all the other nations to be his special possession for his special service. 
And certain things in the Old Testament, likewise, were called holy in that sense of being special or specially set apart unto his service. For example, the promised land is called a holy land. The capital city is a holy city that's set on a holy hill, Mount Zion. And inside the city of ancient Jerusalem, there was a holy temple. Inside that temple were holy priests who offered up holy sacrifices. Even the utensils used in those sacrifices and in other rituals were called holy, in the sense of being set apart by God for his special service. So that's the first aspect of the concept, the biblical teaching of holiness, to be set apart. So when we refer to God as a holy God, we have to think about how he is set apart from everything else. There is no one, no thing like God in all creation. But then we come to the second aspect of holiness, and that does refer indeed to moral and spiritual purity. And of course, God is holy also in that sense, also. God always has pure thoughts and good desires. He always speaks pure words. In his actions and his deeds, there is no impurity, no imperfection. God is absolutely holy, that is, he is pure and good. One respected theologian says that the attribute of God that's most emphasized in the Old Testament is this attribute of God's holiness. Some of you might know that the theologian R.C. Sproul gave a whole series of lectures on the holiness of God. You can check out some of those lectures today on YouTube. That's Sproul, spelled S-P-R-O-U-L. Check him out on his lectures, The Holiness of God. They're indeed wonderful. So the Old Testament will refer to God's holy name and his holy arm. God sits figuratively on a holy throne in heaven. Not only in his being is God holy, but all of God's promises, all of his words and his ways are said to be holy. Now interestingly, a few times in the Old Testament, God is referred to as the Holy One. The Holy One. For example, there's a verse in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. God gave to the prophet Habakkuk a prophecy about the Babylonians, that the Babylonian army would capture Judah and would destroy major parts of the city of Jerusalem. Habakkuk replies to God, quote, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die, but you, O Lord, have appointed them, the Babylonians, to execute judgment. God is a Holy One. In Psalm 16, David writes this, quote, You, O Lord, will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. At first, it sounds like David is referring to his own body, that perhaps his body would never die. But in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter makes the meaning of that Old Testament verse very clear. Acts chapter 2, there Peter says to his fellow Jews, Brothers, I can tell you confidently, that the patriarch David died and was buried. But he was a prophet. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. That's found in Acts 2, 27-32. So Jesus is also the Holy One. He's as holy as God, Yahweh of the Old Testament. 
Father, the Son, Jesus, and of course, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who is holy. Three divine persons, three holy divine persons in the Holy Godhead, the Holy Trinity. Now, this holiness of God is directly connected to other of his attributes. One of them is the righteousness of God. You can find hundreds of Bible verses where God is said to be righteous or to have the quality of righteousness or to speak or act in righteous ways. For example, Psalm 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Isaiah 24, verse 16. The redeemed people of the earth sing to God, saying, Glory to the righteous one. God is the righteous one. Jeremiah the the prophet in chapter 12, verse 1, says that God is always righteous. And in the New Testament, likewise, so many references to the righteousness of God. Think of Jesus' prayer to God the Father where he says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. John 17, verse 25. And that very same attribute of divine righteousness is assigned to Jesus himself. Just one quick quote. It's from John, his first letter, 1 John. He writes that we as believers have someone who speaks to God the Father. He speaks to the Father in our defense. This one is, quote, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. Jesus Christ the Righteous One. 1 John 2 verse 1. As we noted earlier with the attribute of holiness, so it is with righteousness that Jesus shares this attribute with God, with God the Father, with Yahweh of the Old Testament. God is said to be the righteous one, and Jesus is said to be the righteous one. It's just another indication that both the Father and the Son are God, the true God, and the Holy Spirit likewise. For in the Bible, the New Testament, he's said to be the Spirit of righteousness. Well, let's pause for a moment. I want to note something important. It's this, that righteousness and justice are essentially the very same word in the Bible, carrying the same idea. In English, in the English language, we don't really see the similarity between these words, righteousness and justice. They seem like such different words. But both in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament, to be righteous or to be just are from the same root. They're referring to the same thing, essentially. To be righteous is to be just, and to be just is to be righteous. And both words relate to the concept of law, that to have righteousness or justice, there must be equitable legal standards. So out of his righteousness, God gives righteous, just laws, and God enforces those laws. You know, today in many democracies, in government, those functions are often separated. One branch of government will make the law. That's the legislative branch. Legislators make laws. They pass legislation. And then another branch of government, the judicial, has the duty of enforcing the law. But in Israel, those two functions were found in the same person, the leader of Israel. First, the so-called judges in the book of Judges. Do you notice that in newer translations, they're not so comfortable calling them judges, but we'll call them leaders? They were leaders of the nation for that time. They were generals of armies. 
and they acted, as it were, like kings. And so when the kings come along, they are also lawmakers as well as law enforcers. They have both functions. They make the laws and they enforce the laws. Now, of course, God is the supreme king. So God not only makes the laws, but he also judges people according to his laws, and he punishes them accordingly. Let me just give a few references for this among so many that are found in the Bible. Psalm 50, verse 6 says, God himself is judge. Psalm 96, 11 through 13, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. And then a few from the New Testament. In the New Testament, this is made very clear to us that not only does God judge people now in this present life, but someday there will be a final judgment when Jesus comes again. In his second coming, when Jesus returns to earth, part of the purpose for him to return is to judge everyone who has ever lived. So we call it popularly the final judgment because it's the last and final judgment. So the Bible is very clear that right now while we're living, God is judging us. He will punish us. He will reward us. He will give us consequences for the things that we do or say or think. We have to face the consequences of our daily sins, our faults and our failures. And then, of course, God judges us at the point of death. Think of it, when our bodies die, the Bible says that our souls go either to heaven or to hell. That's a judgment. And the basis for that judgment is whether or not we have trusted in Jesus. But then there's one more judgment in Hebrews 9.27. Well, this is actually referring to the judgment after death, Hebrews 9.27. We're told this, quote, People are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. After death, we will all face judgment. And then, finally, at the very end of history, when Jesus returns, there's a last judgment, the final judgment, when all souls are reunited with their bodies and bodies are transformed never to die again. Then Jesus, the judge, with fair judgment, taking all factors into account, renders a verdict upon each person. You know, the Gospels in the New Testament are very clear about this. Jesus teaches this very clearly. Some in that final judgment will be sent out weeping to a judgment of punishment. Others will be welcomed into the Father's home. Well, there's so much more that could be said about all this, and I know that I'm running out of time. If you want more information about Jesus speaking of the final judgment, just read. Read Matthew 24, chapter 24 and chapter 25, and you'll find many of Jesus' own words about that final judgment. Now, let me just observe this. You know, by nature, we really don't like the idea that God judges us. Maybe older civilizations accepted that idea more readily, but not us modern people. And we surely don't like the idea that the basis of God's judgment is not what we think or our human standards, but rather the basis of God's judgment is God's law, his righteous law. There's something in us, maybe even as believers, that reacts negatively to that idea that God not only judges us, but that he sets his own laws as the standard for his judgment. Yet I often think about this, how 
we moderns will make all kind of judgments ourselves in our own lives today. Call them evaluations. That sounds a little, little less judgmental, doesn't it? We evaluate things. We decide whether things are right or wrong, whether they're good or bad. We will judge events. We will judge people's opinions and their writings. In fact, we'll judge other people. Political liberals will judge political conservatives, and conservatives will judge liberals. The moralists judge those they regard as immoral, and the hedonists judge the moralists. The point is, we modern folk will judge all the time. So why is it strange that God also will judge us, and that he's judging us right now? He's evaluating us. He's evaluating our thoughts, our desires, our words, and our actions. God tells us this in his Bible. We have to accept God's teaching on this, that he indeed is the judge. He's the ultimate judge. And it's very clear from the Bible that his standard for judgment is his own righteous laws. So how about for yourself? Where do you think you stand in relationship to God's laws? Where do you stand in relationship to God's laws? And here I think we're coming to the heart of it. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says this, quote, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Look, God is righteous, but no human being of themselves is righteous. All of us, says the Bible, have turned away from God. And what's God's judgment upon us for turning away from him? Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. The wages, that is the payment, the penalty for our sin, for our unrighteousness, is death. And that's not merely physical death. Yes, we all have to die in our bodies. But it's also spiritual death. God has to cut us off from his life. He has to cut us off from divine life and from true life. But here comes the good news. The good news of the Bible, the main message of the Bible, it's this, that our righteous God, the perfectly just God, has come down in Jesus to save us. He sent Jesus to us here on earth. And Jesus, in both his life and his death, proved to be the righteous one. In fact, the only human, truly righteous person. And Jesus, says the Bible, took our unrighteousness on himself. And he took our death penalty. He died on that cross for us. And the Bible says he even suffered hell for us. And here's even more. That Jesus' righteousness is then credited to us who trust in him. Romans 5 verse 19 says this, quote, Through the obedience of the one man, that's referring to Jesus, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. We are made righteous or declared righteous with Jesus' righteousness credited or imputed to us. Verse 17 of that same chapter, Romans 5, says that we simply must receive God's gift of righteousness. That that gift is given by God's provision of grace. Grace is simply God's unearned, undeserved favor. So he gives to us righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, for anyone who simply receives Jesus by a basic and personal faith. Yes, God is judge. 
He judges us by his law. He judges us deserving of death. He passes the death penalty upon us. But then God's justice is wonderfully set alongside of his grace, his mercy toward us. By grace, God saves us in Jesus. God, through Jesus, delivers us from his very own judgment, that judgment of death. By grace, God credits us with the righteousness of Jesus, so that now as supreme judge, God himself declares us not guilty. In fact, he declares us positively as being righteous, righteous in Jesus. Well, we started this episode talking about the communicable attributes of God, that God shares these attributes with us to some degree. So it happens to us with righteousness. We are actually made righteous in Jesus. We are, the word in the, in the book of Romans, we are justified by God the Father. That is, God the Father literally credits to us the holiness and righteousness of Jesus when we trust in him. God then considers us holy, just, righteous. First of all, in that we're set apart as God's own possession, and secondly, that we are pure and blameless in his sight. And then there's more. Not only will God regard us as righteous in our justification, but following our justification, we're called to live increasingly in greater sanctification. That is, we must be growing personally, experientially, in daily godliness, in practical righteousness. None of us are left alone to do that, to try to do as best we can, but Jesus promises us more of the Holy Spirit to empower us, to motivate us, that we will live in greater holiness. Be sure to pray for more of the Holy Spirit, that we may live more and more to God's glory. Wonderfully, God shares with us his very own attributes, of righteousness and his holiness. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Randall. This podcast is produced by my brothers in Christ, Dennis and Moses. Won't you tell your friends about us? We're Mission Upside Down.